Turn with me to Psalm 36. If this is your first time here, uh, I'm, I just lead a, what I call an open Bible study on Wednesday nights. That means any night you show up, you just jump right in. You're not behind. You're just, you can get something out of it any night you show up. And this Bible study has been what we're calling a journey through the Psalms. And we are walking through the Psalms, basically one chapter per week. And we've made it all the way to chapter 36. Uh, there are 150 chapters, so we've got a ways to go. Uh, but we are making progress, and Psalm 36 is, uh, is a really uh, powerful psalm uh, that speaks with such clarity and poignancy uh, into our lives. So find that place in the Psalm 36, Psalm 36. As you're finding your place there, let me just remind you what the psalms are about. I, I, every week I've given you a handout in that uh, statement at the top is a summary of what the Psalms are about. Kendall easily writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So if you consistently read the Psalms, you will be reminded that whether you are on a mountaintop or in a valley, God is worthy of your worship and praise. And whether you're in a mountain, on a mountaintop or in a valley, God is worthy of your confidence. You can trust Him with whatever life uh, brings your direction, and the Psalms remind us of this. And I love the Psalms because they're so they're so raw, uh, with emotion about any emotion you can think of. You can find them in the Psalms, and you see psalmists grappling with just real difficult situations and real life struggles and perplexities. And yet, the psalmists never lose their their reverence for God. They're honest about how they're feeling, but they're still clinging to their trust in the Lord and His sovereignty. And so it's just a really, really uh, great way to, to grow in your faith, to just journey through the Psalms. If we made it to Psalm 36, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in to this chapter. Father, we are grateful for this time to gather together as a faith family and study Your Word. And I pray that You would, Lord, just draw near to us by Your Spirit, that we would, Lord, understand Your Word, and we would take Your Word and apply it to our lives so that, Lord, we can live in a way that your name is honored and glorified. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Psalm 36. The title of uh, this study that I've given you is, Which Will You Choose? Which Will You Choose? There are two options given to us in Psalm 36. And the options are given to us on purpose, uh, and, and they're calling for a decision. So, We'll see that as we read through it. Psalm 36, let's read it together. Uh, verse 1, it has the small letters there, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. This is another Davidic psalm. It's a psalm that David wrote. He says in verse 1, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. 
Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There, verse 12 says, the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. Interesting, interesting words. And I don't know if you've followed it as we were reading through it, but there's a very clear dividing line here where the tone totally changes. Did you see where the tone changed? What verse did it just take a turn in a different direction? Verse 5, right? So verses 1 through 4 talking about evil and sin. Then verse 5, all of a sudden, your steadfast love, O Lord, is, uh, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And so there's a change there, and that's on purpose. He's trying to draw contrast between two options for us to consider. So which will you choose? Everybody okay? Y'all comfortable tonight? Y'all everybody good? Okay, some of you look a little sleepy. All right. All right. Is it, are the tables making you sleepy? The new setup is that. It's kind. Of, it's kind of like a dinner theater. Boy, without any talent. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. So, this song poses a vital question. Would you? Here's the question. Would you rather experience the consequences of sin or the great love of God? That's the question. Would you rather experience the consequences? of sin or the love of God? So well, that's an easy question for you to answer. Well, a lot of people uh, struggle with that question and it's because they don't understand the issues at work. And so before you or anyone answers this question, David wants that person to have all the facts. And it's one, things I, one thing I appreciate about the Word of God, I appreciate about, it, appreciate about the Lord, is that he doesn't leave us without the facts. I mean, before we make a decision for or against God, He lets us know what's at stake. He lets us know, here's what it looks like if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you trust me. Here's what it looks like if you reject me. And He's very clear about the, the consequences. And so the Bible is intent on getting us the facts. Psalm 36, David wants us to have the facts before we answer the question, would you rather experience the consequences of sin or the great love of God? So here are the facts. Number one, we see the danger of sin. Before you answer that question, you need to, to, to consider the danger of sin. And there are at least three things about sin in these first four verses. First of all, sin has an agenda. If you're following along with me, sin has an agenda. He says there, verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And so you and I have two voices competing for our attention. We have the voice of the Lord, which is found in the Word of God, and we have our sin, which is always speaking to us, trying to lead us astray. Sin has an agenda, and and here's why sin speaks to us and tries to lead us in the wrong direction. It's because sin originates in our heart. Notice what he says in verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That's where sin comes from. Jesus said that out of the mouth comes slanders and fornications and all these different sins. And he says they, they come from the heart. These sins originate from the heart. The heart is the source of our sin. So why does sin originate from our heart? Because you and I were both born with a sin nature. Because Adam and Eve sinned way on back in the Garden of Eden, sin entered the world and began to corrupt humanity. And because of that, uh, you and I were born with a corrupt sin nature. And it is because of that sin nature that we sin. 
Did you notice, did you notice in your growing up years, no one had to teach you how to sin? Do you notice that? It, it just came what? Naturally. Like, when my kids were little, I didn't sit them down and say, hey, let me teach you how to manipulate mom and dad and deceive us when you're about to get in trouble. Let's have that conversation. Let me, let me teach you how, to, how, how that works. No, but little kid, it just comes naturally, right? If they're about to get in trouble, they, they want to lie and get their way out, of, or they want to manipulate to get their way. Uh, that just comes naturally. Uh, you ever walk by a sign that says, do not touch wet paint? What do you want to do? You want to touch it, don't you? you want, why? Because sinning just comes naturally. We have sin natures. Our, our sin originates from our hearts. That's why he says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That's where it comes from. And, and so the reality is, apart from Christ, I'm not okay, you're not okay. We are ruined, wicked, depraved sinners. we got a sin nature, and that's why we do all kinds of foolish and evil and rebellious Things because it originates from our heart. And our sin nature is opposed to the will and the ways of God. Look what it says there. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So the person that is letting sin have its way in his life, that person is in rebellion against God, opposed to God. There's no fear of God before his eyes. So sin has a definite agenda. And its agenda is to oppose God, to oppose His will, to oppose His way, and to lead you in the direction away from Him instead of toward Him. Sin is always about destruction. It's always about separating you from God. It's always about ruining your life. Sin has an agenda, and it starts right down in your heart. How many have heard the phrase, you know, the devil made me do it? Ever heard that phrase before? Was that Flip Wilson that said that? The devil made me do it, right? Well, does the devil tempt us to do wrong things? Yes, but can I tell you this? There are many times I've sinned and the devil had nothing to do with it. I sinned because I wanted to. The sin was conceived in my heart. It's what it says over in James 1. Let me show you. Hold your place. Turn to James 1 because some of you don't look like you believe me. Look in James 1. New Testament. After the book of Hebrews. Verse 14, James 1 verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so here he's speaking of the danger of our own hearts. Uh, that want to lead us astray. So sin has an agenda. And, and sin deceives. Back in Psalm 36, verse 2. For he, the person who is opposed to God, no fear of God in his eyes, transgression, speaking deep in his heart, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Sin loves to make us think that we'll never get caught. That's one of the, the great lies of sin and iniquity, that we're going to get away with it. And, and by the way, Satan used that lie in the Garden of Eden. Remember in the Garden of Eden when he was trying to get Eve to eat of the fruit that God said, don't eat? And Eve said, well, I can't eat this. God told me if I eat it, I'll surely die. And Satan immediately says, you'll not die. There are no consequences for your sin. Just do what you want to do. 
And if you do what you want to do, then you'll be happy. But you'll not die. There are no consequences. And that same lie is being whispered by Satan into our ears and being whispered by the deceit in our heart that says, you know what? I can do this and get away with it. I'll not be found out. It'll be okay. I can do it and be happy and get on with my life. Sin deceives. Notice the progression here. There's a progression from, first of all, flatters himself in verse 2. Look what it says. He flatters himself in his own eyes. So the sinner's saying, hey, I can get away with this. I'm going to be okay if I do this. And then it goes to the next phase of heart hardening. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So at first he's saying, I can get away with this. And now he's making a conscious decision. I'm going to stop doing good. And then look in verse 4. It says, he plots trouble. Or that word trouble could be translated evil. He plots trouble or evil while on his bed. So notice the progression there. Sin starts out kind of innocent, you know, in our heart. Let's, something, hey, I, 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 I can get away with this. No big deal, you know. And I'm just going to do it. And then before you know it, you make that decision, it's a slippery slope. Then all of a sudden you're saying, I'm not going to do good. I'm going to keep on living this lifestyle. And then you get the point where you're saying, I'm going to plot evil. I'm going to use my life for things that are opposed to God. It's a slippery slope when you begin to give in to sin in your life. So sin has an agenda and sin deceives. And third, sin destroys. Sin destroys. Verse 4, it says... He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So what are the consequences? We'll look down in verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David's saying here, I don't want to be overcome by the wicked. Look what he says in verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. In other words, David is saying, uh, there's coming judgment for the sins of the evildoer. There, there are consequences coming for their sin where they will be cast down, unable to rise. I think he's talking about the, the consequences of sin in this life, but even greater than that, the consequences of sin in eternity where we will be forever separated from God under his judgment. So that's the danger of sin. Sin is very, very dangerous. And David's making the point, why would you want to play with sin? Why would you want to embrace Sin. Why would you want your life to be characterized by not fearing God? Why would you want to live that kind of life? It's, it's, it's deceitful. It's destructive. Sin has an agenda. It's trying to lead you astray. Why would you give in to that kind of life? It's like the famous saying goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Right? It will. That's what sin is all about. So, that's one option. You can just say, hey, I'm going to do my own thing in life, go my own direction, do what I want to do, live for me, and I'm going to pursue the desires of my heart, which is evil. That's one way to live. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it, but that's one way that you could live, and that's one way a lot of people have chosen to live. But there's another option. And we see in this psalm the delights of God's love. We see the danger of sin, but then we see the delights of God's love. It, the the, the whole, whole tone of the psalm changes there in verse 5. And I want you to see several things about the delights of God's love. First of all, God's love is big. Look in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. He's using this, this picture of of the distance from here to the heavens to speak of God's great love. He's trying to 
use this picture to communicate how big God's love is. God's love is big. And the Bible uh, seems intent on helping us to grow in our comprehension of how big God's love is. Uh, because when you understand how big His love is, it changes you. For example, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. This is a really interesting passage. Ephesians chapter 3, New Testament. Paul here is praying for the believers in Ephesus. I want you to see how he prays in Ephesians chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse 14. Ephesians 3 verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And that's a good prayer. He's saying, I'm praying that God will work in you with powers that your inner man will be strengthened. You know, in our society today, there's so much focus on the outer, right? The outer us, the outer man, the outer woman, what we look like, uh, what, you know, our appearance, uh, how we appear in, in our culture among our friends or neighbors. There's, there's so much emphasis on the outer man, the outer woman. But here Paul is praying for the inner man, the, the inner woman. He's praying that they would be strengthened on the inside, Why? So that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. So here's what he's saying. I'm praying that God will work on the inner you with power so you can have the strength you need, the wherewithal you need to comprehend. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I'm praying you'll grow on the inside, spiritually, so you can comprehend more stuff. Now, what does he want them to comprehend? Well, look what he says next. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? So here's what he's saying. I'm praying that God will strengthen you on the inside so you can comprehend better how big God's love is. Because if you comprehend in a greater way how big God's love is, you experience more, he says, of the fullness of God. Do you want a a deeper, richer, more dynamic relationship with God? Well, think about his love. Because the more you grasp his love, the more you comprehend his love, the more you begin to get your your heart and your mind around how big it is, the more you experience the fullness of God. There's a blessing in comprehending. There's a blessing in, in acknowledging and thinking through the bigness of God's love. Isn't that cool? So Paul's praying from there. I'm praying that you will comprehend how much you are loved by God. That's what he's praying. Now, listen. Real quick, this is kind of a parenthetical note. When's the last time you prayed that for somebody? You know, we pray for, you know, uh, physical needs and and those sorts of things, provision, those sorts of things. But you know a a way we can pray for each other that's really, really important and effective? We can pray that that you and I will grow in our comprehension of God's love. Because that's a game changer. If you and I begin to think about God's love, consider God's love, comprehend God's love in a greater way, we will experience in a daily manner the fullness of God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So next time you pray for somebody, pray, if you pray for me tomorrow, pray that I would be strengthened in the inner man so I can comprehend the length, the height, the depth, uh, the breadth of God's love for me. Because that will change my life. Sound good? All right.
Good. So pray that. Let's pray that for each other. That's how Paul prayed for them in Ephesus. But look what it says over in Romans. Paul makes another comment about God's amazing love in Romans chapter 8. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture. But it's so good, we just need to read it. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Adrian Rogers used to say if he had to pick one book from the Bible... That would be his favorite, it would be the book of Romans. If he had to pick one chapter from the book of Romans, it would be his favorite, it would be Romans chapter 8. That's always, always stuck with me. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I love that verse. Isn't that a cool verse? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How much did God love us? He did not spare his own son. He gave his son for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us, the ones he sent his son to die for, all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, isn't it? Nothing can separate us from the big love of God. If we've embraced His love through Jesus Christ, we are His, and nothing and no one can ever separate us from the love of God. You're in your hands. No one can snatch you from His hands. Amen? Satan can't do it. Others can't do it. You are eternally secure in the love of God, which is yours through Jesus Christ. And so God's love is big. And, and David's drawing that contrast, Psalm 36. Hey, you can listen to sin that's speaking in your heart. You can give in and, and stop doing the right thing and stop fearing God. And you can, you can run away from God and plot evil. But there's another way to live. God's love reaches to the heavens. It made me think of that wonderful song, the love of God, some of the, some of the most beautiful words uh, in hymnody. Listen to how this song describes the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Now I love this, this verse. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Those are some beautiful words, aren't they? And think about that. That's how big God's love is. The, the sky cannot contain descriptions of his love for us. And that love 
is directed toward you through Christ. If you know Christ, you are a recipient of God's big, amazing, majestic love. And uh, David wants us to realize that's a, a way you can live. You can experience God's love. So back in Psalm 36, he tells us God's love is big. But he tells us something else about the Lord. He tells us that his character is perfect. His character is perfect. Look in verse 5 of Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Now he tells us a couple things about God's character. First of all, he tells us God is faithful. Your faithfulness to the clouds. He's speaking here of an attribute of God that God is faithful. In other words, God always comes through. God always keeps his promises. God does not lie. God is always true. God always keeps his word. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, He never fails, nor forgets, nor falters, nor forfeits his word. To every word of threat or promise, prophecy or covenant, the Lord has exactly adhered. For he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. So he's reminding us here that God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. He's not like a man that that lies. You know, uh, even on my good day, I sometimes falter at you know, keeping my word. And sometimes it may be uh, unintentional. For example, uh, I tell Claire, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm going to get milk and bread and eggs. I'm going to get them on my way home from work and save you a trip and get the things for the kids and I'll show up and I'll have milk and bread and no eggs. Now, did I intentionally try to deceive her? No, I just, I'm just you know, I, I, I mess up and blow it sometimes and forget the eggs, right? Right? Listen, God never does that. First of all, his character is perfect, so he always keeps his word because it's the right thing to do. Second of all, he's all-knowing and all-powerful, so he has the wherewithal to perfectly keep his word. Isn't that cool? He doesn't mess up like we do sometimes. He always is faithful. And so David says here, hey, listen, you can chase sin if you want to, but here's another option. God is love. His love reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. But he also says here that God is righteous. Look in verse 6. Your righteousness is is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. He's speaking here of God's perfect dealings with creation. God is righteous. In other words, God always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. He's perfect. He's holy. He's just. He always does what's best, always does what's right. God is righteous. First John says it like this, that God is light In him there is no darkness at all. God never thinks a wrong thought. He never says a wrong word. He never does a wrong thing. God is a God of total, unique, moral majesty. Amen? That's who God is. is, He's righteous. And what what a joy to know that about God. So, David says here in Psalm 36, God, his love is great. His character is perfect. And, and here's what happens when you accept that God's love. All right? what, what happens when you embrace him and follow him and believe in him? Well, a couple things. Um, three things. When we accept his love, we experience true delight. When we accept his love, we experience true delight. You know, people are chasing sin because they think in that sin they'll find happiness. And they are searching for life and happiness and delight in all the wrong places. 
Because sin never delivers on its promise, does it? It, it looks appealing, it, it, it looks exciting, it looks fun, it looks like it'll make you happy, but it always serves up a bitter, uh, a bitter end. And so, uh, when we accept God's love, we experience true delight. Look in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's a way of saying, hey, there are people that have chosen you, God. They come to you, they believe in you, they trust you and your promises and your word. They, they come to you for salvation, for a relationship. Use the phrase, the coming under the shadow of your wings. It's a picture of trusting God. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So when we accept his love, when we embrace him as our God through Jesus Christ, when that happens, we experience true delight. Now, here's what's interesting. Look in verse 8. It says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. Everyone say that word, delights. That's the plural of the word Eden. And what was the Garden of Eden? A place of pure delight. Right? A place of pure delight. God made it for Adam and Eve to live in, to be blessed from in terms of provision, and to experience walking with God in. He gave them the Garden of Eden to live a perfect life of pure delight in a relationship with God. But when Adam and Eve blew it, sin entered the world, uh, cursed the world... And that perfect delight was lost at the garden, in the Garden of Eden. But he says here, if you embrace the Lord, he gives you back those e- that Eden. He gives you back the delights that were lost in the Garden of Eden. He gives you back that relationship with himself. In Christ, listen to this statement. In Christ, the Lord begins to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Write that down, it's not in your notes. It's an important statement. In Christ the Lord begins to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So when I was saved at nine years of age, God began to restore to me that which was lost by Adam and Eve, a relationship with God and and, and his unfailing presence in my life. And then one day, he's going to take me on to glory, and this heaven and earth that we're experiencing now will pass away, and he'll bring in a new heavens and a new earth, and we will experience a perfect paradise to, to... fellowship with him in. Isn't that awesome? So it's interesting if you notice Psalm, uh, Revelation 22, it ends with a garden scene. The Bible starts in a garden, ends in a garden. In other words, Jesus is going to perfectly restore Eden for us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're in process now. We're not there yet, but he's walking with me. He's talking with me. He's with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. Life is still hard, but one day, as he makes all things new, he's going to bring me home to the the new Eden, if you will, where I will experience what Adam and Eve had. Perfect fellowship with God. um, A beautiful place in which to fellowship with God. There'll be no sin there. Satan won't be there, by the way. That's the difference between that garden and the Garden of Eden. Satan will be in the lake of fire. Amen. He'll be done away with. My sin nature will be eradicated, so I don't have to worry about my old sin, sinful heart trying to lead me astray. My loved ones in Christ will be there. I mean, it's going to be awesome, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be incredible. And that's what God is doing. He, over in Revelation 21, it says of Jesus, he's making all things new. He's restoring to humanity what was lost in the garden, and we can have what Adam and Eve had, and even greater through Jesus Christ. That's what he means there when he says, uh, 
give them drink from the river of your delights. The river of your delights. So when we accept his love, we experience true delight, unshakable joy. Joy, delight, happiness that is not based upon the circumstances of this life, but is based upon the, the rock of our foundational relationship with the Lord. So when we accept his love, we experience true delight. There, listen to me. There, there is nothing on this earth, there's nothing this earth has to offer that can even come close to what is experienced in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. just can't even come close. I mean, you, we'll get to that later. So, I got some more I want to say on that. We, we, we experience true delight. Here's the second thing. When we accept His love, and this is big, you ready? Life makes sense. There are people in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and they believe that life doesn't make any sense. Because they're looking at it from the wrong perspective. They're just trying to say, what can I do to pursue my desires to be happy? And that's not how life is designed to work. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. Another metaphor, the fountain, an overflowing fountain of life. That speaks, I believe, of eternal life in heaven. It also speaks of the abundant life we have here on this earth. For you, with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In other words, as we've drawn close to you and your glory and your radiance, it helps us to see things more clearly. It helps us to see life more clearly. In other words, in a relationship with God, when I look at life through those lenses, life begins to make sense. And don't you, haven't you found that to be true? That when you know Christ, life makes sense. Yes, this life is hard, but this life is not all that there is. Amen? Yes, sin has done a number on me, but Jesus died for my sins. Amen? Uh, yes, I'm going to die. One out of one die. I'm mortal, but Jesus defeated death. Amen? It all makes sense. No, I'm not here for me. I'm here for him and his glory. That's why I live on this earth. That's why he gives me life to live for him. My life has meaning and purpose and, and fulfillment, and it makes sense. In his light, I see light. In his light, things begin to make sense. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes by him. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Now listen to what he says. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Read it again. I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. Or I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So, in the morning, when the sun rises, I can walk outside and not even see the sun and know the sun's up. Right? How? I see everything else by its light. And listen to me. One of the ways we know that Christianity is true is because by this Christianity, this relationship with God, everything else begins to make sense, doesn't it? This, this thing we call life begins to make sense and fall into place and have meaning and purpose. That's what he means when he says, in your light do we see light. So we accept his love, we experience true delight, and life makes sense. And here's the third thing. When we accept his love... We experience a relationship with God. Look what it says in verse 10. 
Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. So to say, may those who know you have an ongoing experience of your steadfast love, your kessed, your kindness, your mercy, your grace. There's so much wrapped up in that, that Hebrew word translated steadfast love. But he's saying here, there are folks that know you, have a personal relationship with you. So here's the deal. We look at this verse through the lens of the New Testament. We know that we come into a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. When we ask Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior, we place our faith in him and what he's done for us. We receive his free gift of eternal life. The Bible says we are reconciled. I'm talking about this tomorrow in the men's breakfast. We are reconciled. We're brought into a, a relationship with God, whereby we can call him friend or we can call him father, a relationship with God. And that's an amazing reality, that in Christ we can know God. Right? We can know God. Now, if I told you I knew somebody famous, it might impress, I don't know anybody famous, but if I say I did, uh, it might really impress you, right? Uh, But how impressive is it that I know God? I mean, the God who spoke the universe into existence, I know him. That trumps everybody, right? I mean, there's no one more famous than him. I'm bigger than him. He's the creator. And through Christ, I know him. I have a relationship with him. What an amazing reality that we can actually know God. So we experience a relationship with God. So there are two ways to live. You can chase the sinful desires of your heart and see where that gets you. It'll take you farther than you want to go to keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. Or you can embrace the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. You can come to him and be saved and know him in a personal way. And listen to me, when you are saved, when you are born again, here's what happens. Your past is redeemed, your present makes sense, and your future is secure. How can you lose, amen? Your past is redeemed, your present makes sense, your future is secure. That's what it means to have a relationship with God. And so those are the two options. So let me phrase it like this. Would you rather experience the devastating consequences of sin in this life and in the next life? Or would you rather experience the great love of God? I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But here's the deal. Now listen to this. This is important. It is a no-brainer. When you think about these uh, issues from an eternal perspective. But most of the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis aren't thinking about eternal things. They're try- As a matter of fact, they're trying to keep those things out of their mind and out of their heart. They're just trying to kind of just make it to the weekend or make it to the next day. They're not thinking about eternal matters. And so we have the, the privilege of building relationships with other folks that are far from God and helping them to think about their life from this perspective. Helping them to think, okay, there's two ways to live. You can chase the desires of your heart and experience destruction in this life and in the life to come, or you can receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord and experience a relationship with God. Life makes sense. You experience Eden, delights in your life. So which will you choose? I mean, we have the, we have the, the privilege and the responsibility to help people to consider that there is a choice to make, right? I mean, there's a choice to make. Eternity is at stake. And so we uh, can uh, engage people and ask them this question, would you rather experience the devastating consequences of sin 
or the great love of God. I'm so glad that by God's grace, I'm experiencing his love. I don't fear death. I don't fear eternity because I know him. My sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know that waiting for me in heaven is Eden. Amen? Perfect fellowship with God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And so Psalm 36 is really powerful. I believe David wrote it as an evangelistic song to help people, the people of Israel consider, hey, what are you going to choose? Are you going to chase your sinful heart or are you going to come to the one true God by faith and, and take refuge under the shadow of his wings. And we do that through Jesus Christ.